Galatians 3, chapters, uh, verses 15 to 25. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. <clears throat> Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through the angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until this faith was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Well, good morning, everyone. Obviously, we've got a few audio problems with a couple of videos, but it's great anyway for us just to let our hearts be stilled and let our minds be quiet as we come to God's Word this morning. And we're in the book of Galatians. Next week, we're going to have a quick break. We're going to get a Philippians 1, and then we're going to finish the rest of the school term out in the book of Galatians. How about I pray? Can I encourage you? Have it open in front of you. We've got a big passage. There's a lot in it. And I'm going to be up front. I'm not going to be able to unpack this whole passage for us today. But we're going to try and get a bit of an understanding of what's going on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to give you thanks for your goodness that you've shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to thank you for the gospel. And Lord, we pray now that we won't drift or slide or move on from it and subtly um, add to the glorious message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may our hearts be open now to hear and to see the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's, it's, it's been a couple of interesting weeks. It's been encouraging weeks on the TV. It's been exciting because of the royal family. As they celebrate, not the diamond jubilee, which is like 60 years, they're celebrating the platinum jubilee of the Queen. Now, what a life, what a legacy. And I wonder if you've been seeing the variety of stories, the, the happy moments, the moments of humour, where you see the Queen hanging out with Paddington Bear, those humorous moments to think that Kate Middleton's kid Louis would sort of pull faces and it sort of was the joke of the world and, and it was just one of those beautiful moments. But amidst all of that as well, I, 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 you know, there was this tension, wasn't there, of what's Harry and Meghan Markle going to do? Are they going to show up? 
And you have this photo of them in the cathedral and they sit down and Harry and Megan arrived. But as I saw that picture, it actually it transported me back to a couple of years ago to their wedding day where Harry and Megan got married and there was Michael Curry who gave this energetic, passionate sermon that the media caught hold of and it just took off like fire. This passion, this engagement, like he caught the attention of everyone. In fact, I think he probably almost stole the wedding. You know, everyone wanted to know who this Michael Curry was. He was passionate. And in his sermon, he, he talked about God's love. He talked about Jesus. He talked about the power of love. He, in fact, he talked about the power of redemptive love. And as good as it all sounded on that evening, on a Saturday night, deep down I was actually quite troubled by the sermon. And it was interesting that all the media hype, they grabbed hold of this sermon. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because in fact, during that sermon, yes, he mentioned God is love. He mentioned Jesus died. But the reason it was so popular was that Michael Curry never said anything that was offensive. He never offended anyone. See, Michael Curry that evening, he said things that were true. But he also said things that were false. He said true statements, but at the same time he said other things. God is love. Jesus saves. But he also said Jesus plus redemptive love. Some people thought... So he got a bit of feedback because some people said he actually didn't present the gospel at all. He presented, yes, Jesus saves you, but you and me need to go out with redemptive love that will take hold of this world and renew creation. So yes, Jesus saves, but you go and do these things. And it was interesting because the next day I was at church and someone came up to me and said, hey, did you see the wedding last night? I did. Did you hear the sermon? I said, I did. And I said, what a cracker. And I thought, well, when you get that kind of instant, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask you, why was it such a cracking sermon? And the person said to me, well, it was a great sermon because Jesus was mentioned. Now, the false teachers that, that Paul's writing, well, he's attacking and rebuking here. They loved Jesus. They used the word Jesus, but it was Jesus plus, not redemptive love of us going out into the world and it's going to be through us that we can redeem people, that we can save the world. Now they weren't teaching that, but they were teaching that it's Jesus, yeah, Jesus saves, but plus you need to do the law, plus you need to get circumcised, plus you need to follow these rules and regulations. Jesus saves, but to stay in, you now must pay your part and own God's favour and merit. See, it's so subtle, isn't it? We can throw the word Jesus and talk about Jesus, but actually it's no gospel at all. And you could be here today, not as a Christian, and we're so thankful that you're here, thankful that you want to find out more. Can I just encourage you that not everything you hear on the TV, not everything you see is actually the true gospel. It could be religion. Just because someone uses the word Jesus doesn't mean they're representing the biblical gospel. 
And so that's why we have Christianity Explain, where you can come and you can dig deep and find out what do we mean? What does the Bible show us about what the gospel truly is? So this morning, we're going to do a couple of things. We're going to do three things. It's a three-point sermon. First, we're going to see that salvation comes through the promise, and then I'm going to ask the question, well, then, what's the point of the, the, the law? Because the audience that Paul's writing to, they're a bit etchy. Some of these false teachers, they're getting a bit etchy because last week, RJ so helpfully showed us about the promise of Abraham. And so these, these law-abiding rabbis and, and Jewish Christians, they're, they're like, you've elevated Abraham, but... Where's Moses in this? What about the law? And so Paul knows where they're going with it. And so he, he's going to do a bit of biblical theology for us. So what we're going to do is you're going to have to hang with me for a few moments. Because one of the worst things we can do with the Bible is pull passages out of context. What good Bible reading does is it, it, it looks at the plan of Genesis to Revelation, the plan of redemption, and sees how it plays out. So that we make sure that we, we don't grab the law, right? And use it in a way today that it's not meant to be used. Okay, Genesis chapter 12. Last week, grab your Bibles if you want. You need to go back to Genesis chapter 12. Now in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram, who was a pagan. He does not worship God. God calls him and he says to Abram, remember we've got Adam and Eve have fallen. We've had the, the flood, the world spiraling down. And God says to Abraham, notice this, I will make you into a great nation verse 2 and I will bless you I will make your name I will I will bless those who bless see God's saying I will do it I will do it I will do it this is a promise made by God and we see in Genesis chapter 15 if you turn over to Genesis chapter 15 God takes Abraham goes outside Abraham's tried to fulfill this promise on his own way and it's not the way God wants to do it because God's going to do it and he says to Abraham, look at the stars, look at the moon. Like, right, you're going to have heaps of descendants. And he's like, well, how can I? We're old. And so God says, I will do this. And he has this, this part in Genesis chapter 15. Have a look there at verse 9. So the Lord said to Abraham, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and each three-year-old's dove. Cut them in half. Abraham goes to sleep. So the covenant's being made. God says, I'm going to do this. God passes through it. Abraham doesn't. See, God is saying, I will bring about this promise. Not Abraham. Right? Okay. Now, go to Exodus chapter 19. And can we have that next slide up on the screen? It's sort of a bit of a plan of re redemption. So to Abraham and his offspring, right? that's God's promise. That's probably 1,800 years roundabouts prior to Christ. Then 430 years later, we get to Exodus chapter 19. Now, Israel's life's not so dandy in between that 430 years. And we get to Exodus chapter 19. God has rescued them. He's redeemed this people. He's pulled them out of slavery. We've gone through the parting of the Red Sea. We saw that a couple of weeks ago in our series in the book of Exodus. Now, in chapter 19, verse 3. This is about 430 years after the promise. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Verse 4, you yourself have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You've seen my redemption. You've seen my salvation. Verse 5, now... Notice the shift. Before the Abraham promise was I will. Now here, God says, now if... You obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. 
Go back to Galatians chapter 3. So I think in, in, if you read the rest of chapter 19, you're going to see the Ten Commandments are laid out. This law is laid. And so as we think about law today in the book of Galatians, I'm thinking about the Ten Commandments. I'm thinking about this law that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. But the false teachers, they've infiltrated these churches. And what it appears to be is that they're elevating the Mosaic law, right? The era of the law. They're elevating this to above the promise of Abraham. They're going from I will do to now we will do. See, salvation appears, right? Salvation is by promise, we've seen. But it appears on the surface then, logically then, that no, 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 salvation has now shifted to salvation by performance. Now, when you think about this, if you look at the screen, it makes, it does make logical sense, doesn't it? Like, okay, the promise was made to Abraham, then 430 years, we've superseded it. It's an update. Like it's, it was I will, but now it's you will. Now that makes logical sense to us in a Western world. That's what the Jews, the Jewish Christians were probably thinking it makes sense even in in our culture I'm not talking about a Christian worldview but I'm talking about the Aussie culture the Western world set even if you've seen the last 15 to 20 years our values and our systems have shifted right what we think's right and wrong has changed and what do we think as Aussies in our culture well we know better and superseded all that old stuff it's no longer needed but what Paul's going to do is he's going to say, no, no, you're misinterpreting it. You're, you're, you're missing the point. Because salvation, point one, salvation is through the promise, not you. That's point one. Do you notice that in verse 15 to 18? So he's going to show us that, no, no, even though the era of law has come in, that promise has not been done away with. It hasn't changed the means to it. Here's an example of it. Imagine you and your sister. You and your sister have an Aunt Betty who's got a multi-million dollar mansion in Rosebane, Sydney upon the water and she's got multi-million dollar assets in stock and money, right? So she's wealthy as. Now you, you obeyed your parents, you were a good student at school, you practiced your piano five times a day, five days a week and, 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 and you kept mum happy, and so you kept your parents happy, and you went to university, got a degree in corporate banking, and you've come out, and now you own a multi-million dollar mansion at Narrabeen, and you've got a few million dollars in, in trust funds. But your sister, your sister, well, she didn't live like you, and she left home, and ended up on the streets, and really just has the clothes on her back, and goes in and out of accommodation all the time. So Aunt Betty, she writes her will, her legal will. She writes it up and she writes, okay, three quarters of my assets, my money, my mansion, it's going to go to your sister and you're going to get a quarter of it. And it's a legal binding will. It's been instituted. It's gone to the courthouse. That's the promise. You're going to get a quarter, but your sister's going to get three quarters. So Aunt Betty, it's, it's a month out from her dying and she's... She's fading. We know she's going to pass away. And something tragic happens to you where you get a divorce, you lose your mansion, you lose your millions of dollars, and you're basically left with the clothes on your back and a dog. And your sister, though, she's got her life together. 
And now she's, she's in a house at Narrabeen and she's got some money. Even though your situation has changed, that will is still binding. Your sister gets three quarters and you get a quarter. Because wills are legal. See, once a, a will is made legal and binding and it's been registered, it is irrevocable. You can't change it. So despite the new conditions, the will will stand. Have a look at verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, that's a legal will that has been duly established. So it is in this case. The promises were spoken to who? Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, which is really interesting because it's saying, no, no, this promise was pointing forward to Jesus. Many, many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law was introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. See, the promise is God will do. The law says, if you will do it, you've got to do it, right? So he's saying, no, 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 as soon as you go to the law, no longer upon the, the promise, which is a big problem. If it depended on the promise, but God, have a look at this, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. God gave it to him as grace in his promise. This promise was grace. It's an unmerited gift from God. Now, it's, it's, I'm not really good. You've, you've worked it out. My English skills are quite terrible. I don't even know when to put a comma in a sentence and I leave verbs out and nouns out every now and then. But in the English language, we have I ran, I run, or I am running, and I have I ran, I will run, right? Past, present, and future. But see, in this, in this, um, in, in this era, this, this word God graciously gave this this idea of God graciously gave for for the original hearers they would have heard God gave the promise in the past it's binding in the past it's binding in the present and it'll always be binding into the future so we don't have English to sort of portray that what it's saying is this came in and it's irrevocable this grace you can't earn it that's the law isn't here to save you or to keep you in the family of God. It's, but we subtly do it, don't we? We're saved by grace alone, but as we walk the Christian life, we believe we need to gain and keep God's favour and acceptance. Now, we, we, we believe that we've been saved by Christ alone, but we believe sometimes that our tithing makes God favour us a bit more. If I just give a little bit more, God will surely favour me. Surely God favours me a little more because I pray three times a day. Surely because I respond to every missionary and support them and write back to them and engage with them, surely God favours me a little bit more than someone else. You know, and sometimes you think, well, as a church, if only we handle the books correctly, if only we do this and only if we do that, then God will bless the church. We are not blessed through anything that we have done. We are blessed through Jesus. We've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's through Christ that we have life. See, it's tempting as we grow as Christians to look within ourselves to our own efforts, to our own achievements, to our own 
sense of gain that we think we're now more acceptable to God because we've done those things. But the problem is when we do it, as we saw last week with Pastor RJ, when we do that, it leads to two things. It's either going to leave you utterly and hopelessly in despair and failure, or it will leave you utterly proud and arrogant because you've achieved so much. Do you see what the law does? It makes those of you who want to work and achieve things and work hard, it makes you feel proud of yourself. And the reason you're proud is it's not because you're comparing yourself to God, because you're comparing yourself to your neighbor and someone else going, hey, look, well, Look, I've prayed three times, they've only done it twice. So that's what pride does, it compares you. But then the other one is failure. Some of you in this room, right, some are prideful. Others of you just feel utter failure and despair because you know you can never live up to people. You know you can never pray that much. You know you'll never engage with missionaries that much. You know you can never give more than someone else here in the church. You just know that. And so you feel just helplessly lost and a failure. But see, when you feel prideful and arrogant, as RJ showed us, or when you feel like a failure, when we're like that, both of us are living under law, believing that our merit and our favour is won because of what we have done. But here, the promise reminds us that salvation is grounded in the promise and not in your achievements. Isn't that freeing? The gospel actually sets us free. Why do we get, I've been reflecting this, why do we get put out when someone misquotes us, they take what we've done opposite to what we intended them to do it. What, why do we do that? Why does it stir us up so deep inside? Because we think we've let them down. And we think that that action now has lost favour and merit with that person because they think like that of us. And so what do we do? will naturally try to win their favour back. We try to win it back by doing good things. Because we don't want them to see us like that. We, we've lost brownie points with them. But isn't that good that God doesn't deal with us like that? God doesn't deal with us according to how we perform, but he deals with us according to the promise. Which leaves us with a question then, doesn't it? And it left the Jewish Christians who were law driven like, well then what is the point of the law right well then what what is the purpose of the law if it doesn't do that like well that's verse 19 isn't it lucky that Paul asked that question why then was the law given at all now if you want to be home for lunch or you want to be home before Jesus returns verses 21 or even verses yeah verses 19 to 25 I am not going to be able to unpack exactly how each verse fits in there's just no chance so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and sum it up with two points. There we go. Only lightly. What is the purpose of the law? The first point is, it's the law diagnoses our hearts and heightens our sin. The law diagnoses our hearts and heightens our sin. Now, there are other purposes for the law. Okay, it reveals God's character, but we're not touching those matters today. There are other purposes for the law, but the law diagnoses our heart and heightens our sin. Now, I'd imagine most of you have a red wheelie bin, you have a green wheelie bin, and you have a yellow, right? You know, yellow's recycling, green's your waste, and then your red's your, the stuff that's not, you know, you just can't get rid of. Now, when I was at Forbes, we, we, we moved into a house, it was about a month in, and the owner of the house that we were renting on, he bought a brand new red wheelie bin. 
And so as we moved in, we we're putting stuff in there and out. And this wheelie bin was smick. It presented well. You know what I mean? Like it was red, shiny, the wheels are new. This bin was the bin of all bins. It looked beautiful, it looked glossy on the outside. It was a great bin. It presented well, like moral Christians present well. And so I've lifted the lid this day. I've lifted the lid to expose the con, and I've lifted the lid of the red wheelie bin. And I look inside, and it looked like there was just a whole bunch of white rice dumped in the bin. And I looked at it though, and I looked closely. White rice doesn't move. Maggots move. It was just layered in maggots. See, lifting the lid exposed what was deep inside. And the law lifts the lid on our hearts and exposed the maggots inside. Now, it's interesting, we, we laugh, don't we, because it's funny, but... How often do we laugh when the law exposes us? We try to, to get rid of it. The law is like that bin that exposes, there's a lift, the depths of our heart. The law reveals your sin, your, your blind spots, your ignorance. It even reveals those moments where we have contempt for God. But really, we don't want the law to expose us. Deep down, we want the law to give us life. You know, we're a bit hesitant going, no, I don't want to talk about this. But I want to do things so it gains me merit and gains me life. Now, a couple of hundred years after Jesus, we get a really good insight into how the Jewish rabbis sort of thought about the law. That gives us a bit of an insight into the first couple of centuries. This writing is from the Mishnah that clearly shows that the Jews believe that obeying the law is the way to merit God's favor. Have a look on the screen. Great is the law for it gives life to them that practice it both in this world and in the world to come. They, 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 they believe it's eternal life. They thought if we obey the law, it'll give us life now and into eternity. Yet notice what Paul says in verse 21 to 22. Is, this, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given, now just hang on, just go back there for a moment. Like, see, these Jewish people going, we've got the promise of God and we've got the law of God. They can't complement each other. They're contrary, aren't they? But Paul's going to show us actually, no, 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 they work together. Let's go back. Absolutely not. For if a law had been given, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law was never intended to give life. The law cannot change us. The law cannot give us life. The law was never intended to be a means by which you are saved and you gain eternal life. In no form can the law ever transform our hearts I hated Brussels sprouts as a kid now do you think I could get away with not eating Brussels sprouts I hated them and I ate them and even as I ate them I hated them you can obey God's law and still hate God the law can be enforced, but 
you can still hate the giver of the law, right? You know, we get enforced. We've got to, we've got to drive at 100 k an hour. Now, some of you go, man, I wish we could be at 110. And then if we got to 110, you just wish we could drive at 120. You know, like we, 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 we know we've got to obey the law, but we don't exactly like the lawgivers of this country. But see, Jeremiah, he's so profound in the Old Testament. He says, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. See, no matter how many rules you have in your home, no matter how much you get your kids to memorize the Ten Commandments and obey them, it will never produce life and a changed heart. It can never bring life. They need to be born again. We need to be born again. We've got a cat called Gus. He's about five years old. He's a tomcat. We'll just hide that photo for just a second, Barry. Is that all right? We'll go just hide that for a moment. We've got a, we've got a cat called Gus. He's, he's a country cat. So he grew up outside. And Gus is this tomcat. We leave outside at night. And you know what cats do? They hate birds, don't they? That's why some people put bells on them. But our cat, you know, occasionally you come out in the morning and guess what's sitting on your front porch or on your veranda? A dead bird. Because see, cats don't like birds. They take them out. They prance around and they hate them and they often go, Phew, they jump on them. Cats just hate birds. Now, on Friday morning, though, I was sitting on the back veranda. My day off, I was having a cup of coffee and I just love this photo. Like, it's an incredible photo, isn't it? Like, Here's this cat. He was actually snoozing at this point. And there's Percy, our pet budgie. And they're just there in harmony. But why are they in harmony? Because the cage is there. It's, now, I, I want to ask you the question. Is Gus sitting there delighted in that bird? No, he'd kill that bird if the cage wasn't there. And that's what the law does, doesn't it? It, it, it holds us back. It prevents stuff. It doesn't, see, notice how it never changes the heart. See, Gus still hates the bird. Even though we put a cage around the, the bird. And, and, and that's why it's so difficult with kids, isn't it? To know are they actually born again? Because they can obey. We can, we can discipline them so well. Like It's good to do discipline. It's good to bring them up in the ways of the Lord. But we can't change their heart. It's interesting, isn't it, sometimes with 21-year-olds or 23-year-olds, they grow up and they, they look pinnacle and they look like they're obeying God's law, but then they get to 21 and they just sort of, it just drops off the radar. I wonder if that's because they're not actually born again, but they've just learnt how to, to, live the Christ, to live the so-called Christian life. Or they've just thought that actually it's my law and what I do that merits salvation, and they just end up going, I can never live like this. Adults, unless you're born again, you can't change your life. The law can never give and change your heart. In fact, it imprisons your heart. See, a prisoner is someone who's locked up. A prisoner can never free themselves because they need to be set free by someone else. Look at verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, this is before the coming of Jesus. <coughs> Remember that, that diagram on the, on the screen, the era of law. Before this coming of this faith, we were held in custody by the law, under the law, locked up, that's in prison, until the faith that was to come would be revealed, until Jesus was revealed, so that the law was our guardian. It guarded us until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, under a tutor of the law. 
The law can never justify you. Only Jesus can. The law can expose your heart, but it can never give you a new heart. See, did the giving of the law at Mount Sinai to this nation, did it actually make Israel any better? Actually, in fact, it revealed why they needed saving in the first place. In fact, rather than changing their hearts, they continue to fail even more on a heightened level. Go and read the book of Judges. Go and read 1 and 2 Kings. Go and read through David and see Solomon and we just see failure after failure after failure. Because see, the law diagnoses and exposes our hearts. Have a look at verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Literally what it's saying is that the law was given and it was added, well, it, it literally says it increased sin. Now it's a law. But you said it, don't you? It actually heightened it. It actually really showed us for who we really are. Unless you're in Christ, the law will leave you terrified, condemned, and it will ultimately crush you and leave you imprisoned. And, and this is what the, the, the Jewish teachers were trying to do. They're trying to take people back to the era of law. Where actually the law was never intended to save you, to redeem you. The law was never intended to change your heart and your passion. It was never intended to do that. It was just an era of a period as we waited for that promise to come with the seed of Jesus. I, I, I love what John Stott says here. There's going to be a quote that comes up on the screen by John Stott. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. What's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law, it's, it reveals our heart, it heightens our sin, but here it is. Ultimately, the law lights up Jesus. So the law actually, it, it lights up Jesus and his grace that he's shown us. It leads you to Jesus, it points you to Jesus, it makes Jesus shine even more and more. See, everyone is imprisoned until Christ sets them free. Everyone is imprisoned until Christ sets them free. I, I, I wonder, as we sit here in this building, I wonder sometimes do we look out at the world and we look at the world and we go, man, they're an abomination. How could they live a life like that? And we think to ourselves, the best way is get the right prime minister in, get morals in Australia happening again, and people's hearts will be changed. And that will be the best thing for our country. Well, actually, the law reminds us. Instead of looking at the world and thinking, man, look at them and look at us here. Instead, it should say, we should cry out, but for the grace of God, go I. But for the grace of God, I would be just like that, except for his gospel. See, the law makes Jesus more glorious, more bright, more magnificent. And our only response is to fall on him and rest in him. So that's what the law does. It just shines Jesus. In 2008, 
I was planning to get engaged, and you know when you're planning to get engaged, you've got to buy a ring. Um, and so I thought, well, I, I, we'd go buying rings. We're going to have a look at some rings. And we went, I think it was Angus and Coot or something like that, and we went and looked at some diamond rings. And so I thought, well, I'm going to have to buy a diamond ring for my lovely girlfriend, who is soon going to be my fiancée. And so I actually, you know, for a, for a country bloke at that time, I really enjoyed buying diamond rings. I hadn't been interested at all before that. But when you go buying diamonds, it's actually, it's, there's something amazing about it because not every diamond is the same diamond. Like they have different colours, they have different clarities. Some diamonds don't have in, as many impurities. And so when you look at diamonds, you've got to have a look at their, their, how good they are. And one of those things that you've got to look at is colour. And there's a colour chart like from D in the alphabet, D, E, F, G, H, I, down to M, right? Now, they should have gone the other way, but it goes from M. M is really bad through to D where you're going to need millions of the big bucks to, to buy it. And, and so you have this colour that tells you how good this diamond is but there's something else that I imagine you know as you sit there with the little the little magnifying glass and you're looking at the ring one thing that the the jewelers always did they would pull the ring out and they would lay it on a black cloth why did they lay it on a black cloth because the darkness of that black cloth made that diamond sing more and more and more so the black cloth helped you to see you know is this really an M or a H? And, and so you start to learn. I could start to learn whether a ring was good. You could have two rings next to each other, and I could tell if one diamond was better than the other. See, that black cloth, as you lay the black cloth out and you look at the diamond, it makes the diamond sing. And see, that's what the law does. It's, it's grace. It's actually the backdrop of the law. As we look at Christ, the backdrop of the law makes Jesus even more glorious. It's not until we see the darkness of our sin will we see the, the, the light of the gospel that is liberating and freeing. It's not until we see how big our debt really is will we see the big debt that Christ has paid for us. And Jesus will just become more glorious and more glorious. I don't think there is a day that goes past where Jesus just doesn't increase on my scale of M to D. Now, we're going to run out of that. But every day as I just think about how I get exposed by the law, I get exposed by my family, I get exposed by the church. You know, as we start to really realise what's going on inside, there's not a day where I feel like the gospel doesn't get more beautiful and Christ isn't more glorious. Because he is worthy of all our praise. The, the law just is a backdrop that just shows us the incredible graciousness of our Father in heaven, for whom all honour and worthy, all worth, all honour, all praise is due to him, so that our lives are worthy of praising him. Let's never be a church that moves on and gets bewitched by false gospels. See, on that day, Michael Curry, he presented, a, he presented Jesus... But it wasn't a Jesus that would bring hope. It wasn't a Jesus that would change the hearts of the nation. It was a, a law-driven, works-based religion. Whereas we have the gospel that is grace and grace alone. So the law was never here to save. It was never had the power to change our hearts. The, the law reveals who we really are so the law could reveal Jesus for who he truly is. The one who obeyed the law on our behalf. 
the one who lived the life we could not live, the one who died the death we should have died, so that you and me could receive the promise of Genesis 12 through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray, hey? Father, we want to thank you for the promise that is, that is irrevocable. It's irrevocable, which means that tomorrow when we stuff up, we are still yours through Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to delight in Jesus and know that we've been set free through him. Don't let us shift, don't let us move subtly, but let us stay grounded in the one true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.